This is the Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck Podcast. Every game. You are going to go back to throw the ball. Sets up, looks, throws toward the corner of the end zone. It is intercepted. Intercepted. And it's in the ball. Every story. If we just continue to push and grind and go and take care of our guys, it's going to be built to last. The Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck owner, Justin Hopkins. And Matt Bagley from 96.1, 580, the game. It's not perfect. It's not anything to brag about yet, but you can't complain about the result. Ducks are 2-0, go into Pullman, in the snow, get a big W, and we're going to break it down, taping this pod on a Monday, scoop duck and hi-fi. Matt Bagley alongside my friend Justin Hopkins from Scoop Duck, who joins me across the interwebs Uh, my friend i i I led this off saying hey i don't think it was perfect but you can't complain with the w is that how you felt with the ducks win saturday i think that that's something that uh you know you and i have kind of just really taken on that mantra for the last few years so i don't know that it necessarily applies here you know, at the end of the day, you know, you, you love these perfect wins and you would love to have beaten Washington State 75 to zero and and all those things. But just you peel it all back and you take your own expectations out of this. And you said, hey, Mario Cristobal, how do you feel about winning in Pullman on Saturday on a really weird season? He's going to say, hey, I feel pretty good. We could have played better. We probably could have done some things better. We want to get better. But we left with a win. We're happy. You know, all the players certainly seemed happy. You see them posting 2-0 and and you know, or 1-0 this week or whatever. And and I think that's the mantra, you know, fans need to try and adopt is, hey, it's, you know, every week. You just want to finish 1-0 every week. And, um, you know, th- that's the goal. We get, myself included, we get so caught up with changing our expectations at some point during the week because you see, hey, you know, Wazoo's missing this player or, you know, whatever the case might be. And you start changing your expectations when you really just need to go back to that original expectation before the first game began. And you said, look, if Oregon can go 6-0 and this season, I'll be happy. Well, so far they're 2-0, and you know, one-third of the way there. And, and I, I thought this was a trap game. This one felt to me like it had trap game potential. You know, Washington State, you won't really know. You, you feel like you're, you're far superior to them in terms of talent. They've got a new coach. Um, you know, they played a pretty good first week, so that kind of changed a little bit. But overall, this one had the makings of a trap game because, let's face it, the Palouse has not been very kind to the Ducks the past few years. Yeah, yeah. I, I think about those turnovers early, and I I definitely had that moment. Maybe it was just 2018 left a real sour taste in my mouth because you and I both were banging the drum that that team could have been a playoff team uh, heading into that game in Pullman two years ago. But I was definitely worried in the second quarter of this one. I, that that bomb that Tyler Shuck threw at the end of the first half, if he doesn't make that play, how do you think that game turns? Uh, good, good question. I mean, that was definitely, you know, that was rough, but you know, for me, I was just sitting there looking at the score, um, and just kind of feeling like, you know, look, the, the ducks are, what was the score? That was a set, uh, let's see, it was seven to 
14, I believe, right, before right. that happened. It was, like a, it was like a two-possession game. I think it was like two 1907, game. something like that. 1907, you're right, you're right, 1907. I'm looking at that going 1907. Uh, you're, yeah, 1907, and you've, you really haven't played well. You know, Oregon's played some pretty bad ball, and uh, Washington State's actually done some good things. And at the end of the day, you're talking about being only down 12. And then, you know, next thing you know, a big kick return. Uh, get the ball out there a little bit, and then you've got that big play to Jalen Red, and next thing you know, you're in the end zone, and it's you know going into the half, nineteen fourteen. It's like, well, that's even better. Right. So, um, you know, I, I I think that that certainly gave the Ducks a little bit of fire going in at halftime, and 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 you know the coaches saying, hey, look, we can get this thing done. We just got to execute a little better, and that's probably much of what they said in the locker room. Made some made some tweaks and came out. They came out guns blazing in the second half. I mean, they really never looked back, um, you know, uh, from that spot. So I, I think it was big. I still think Oregon, Oregon could have overcame that deficit. Obviously, the score would validate that, but I, I take I take that into account. I think I think Oregon could have could have sustained, but it certainly was a nice development there. And then, of course, you know, for me, even prior to that play, I'm sitting here going, "Okay, Oregon gets a ball to start the half. Oregon gets a ball to start the half." Well. You go and you add that, and the fact that the Ducks get the ball to start the second half, you know, it really gave you a huge boost of confidence. Yeah. Uh, I want to go over a couple of things that caught my eye on Saturday night. Uh, you talked about the ugly start and then the jump start early second half. To me, that means tale of two halves. Uh, which team do you think Oregon is closer to? The team that was sloppy in the first or the team that was on fire in the second? I honestly think Oregon's right where I expected them to be. I be- I believe if we once again, if we if we just take our 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 renewed or our changed expectations and said, what did I say about this team? Not just me, but to yourself, going into the season, and it was, hey, the offensive line's probably going to struggle. Okay, there's five new starters. You've got a brand new offensive coordinator. Uh, you've got a brand new quarterback. The offense is probably going to have some hiccups, and they did. But that said, explosive plays are off the charts, uh, you know, compared to last year and year before that. And so they're able to do some things. And honestly, for me, the offensive line is playing better than that, than I expected them to. I think that this is a unit that's actually going to probably be end up being even better than I thought. They aren't making mistakes. Okay, they aren't they they aren't creating you know hold penalties or false starts or all of those drive killer penalties that really make things so much more difficult on the quarterback and the offensive coordinator. Mm-hmm. The wide receivers are making some of the most ridiculous catches that we have seen at Oregon in the last decade. Yeah, and and and, and that's through two games. I think Tyler Shuck is a guy that really it, this team is just. I feel like it's kind of on the brink from becoming explosive. And and don't get me wrong, there's been some explosive plays. You know, they put up 40-something points against uh, Washington State. They're scoring points. But it certainly looks to me like they're teetering on the edge of just becoming an absolute explosive offense. And I think Tyler Shucks right there. I think he's made some mistakes. But it sounds like from listening to Coach Cristobal in the past and again earlier today on Monday – you know, hey, that's a guy that shows up and works hard, goes over the tape, is really hard on himself, and continues to try and get better. Well, if that's if that's your quarterback and he's going in every week and every Sunday and every Monday and trying to get better, you know, I, I think we're going to see Tyler Shuck really just start to take off. And again, I know that we, you and I are talking about the present, the now, the 2020, the season, getting to 6-0 and all of those things. 
and it's very exciting. But I, I would be absolutely lying if I didn't say I had my eye on 2021 already and what we're seeing now, you know, and how that would translate into a 2021 season after you finish this season, after you have spring ball, after you have summer camp and, and another fall camp. I'm really, really excited. And that, and that, and again, of course, we, we don't know who will, who will leave, who will stay. We don't know which coaches, you know, the, the coordinators are both going to have their names thrown out there for jobs that open up here and there, you know, will they be back? But if you, if all things considered, if most of these guys all return players and coaches return, I secretly have my eye on 2021. I think I think big big things are brewing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we all went into the year expecting this is a young roster. It's a deep roster, but it's a young roster, and it's going to take time for that roster to gel. The same way that uh, that last senior class with Herbert and Die and all those great guys took time to gel. You're going to take your lumps. 2018 is a great example. And then you're going to excel in the following years. Um, When you talk about the future, and you mentioned 2021 a couple of times there, does the future involve as many quarterback runs as we're seeing from Oregon right now? You know, I think so. I think that's, I, I just think that's Tyler Shuck. I think that's him. You know, I think he likes to run the ball. I think it's just something in him that that sees open field, green grass, and thinks, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll play another down here." Uh, for me, what I love most, what I love most about Tyler Shuck running is, well, there's two things, but first and foremost is the fact that it keeps the defense so much more honest because of how much he offers up that threat. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're no longer just keying on the running back. Uh, you know, obviously the the defensive end or the outside linebacker or whoever's spying or crashing that edge has to account for Tyler Shuck just as much as C.J. Verdell or whoever's running the ball. So I love that element of this offense, and I think that that's really helped to make it more dynamic. We know that Justin Herbert can run. It just certainly seemed like he had a, a hesitancy to run, and, and ultimately I think that was something that sort of limited the offense in, in some areas. Uh, secondly, Tyler Shuck has done an, a tremendous job so far of the running he's done of sliding and not taking a big hit. All those runs, he's getting down before anybody can hit him. He's playing it safe. Um, and, you know, even by playing it safe, he's still getting seven, eight, nine, ten 10 yards, whatever the case might be. But then he's down and in, in the dirt and ready to go for the next down. So I really love the element of his running, but I also love the measures that he's taken to stay safe and be able to continue and finish out the football game because that's really kind of gone um, unnoticed for the most part right now. And uh, if your quarterback's taking care of himself, you, you you know, you feel good about him hopefully playing the rest of the season. Yeah, it, it was a great game Saturday, but this point about the running quarterback was what really popped out to me because it's so different from what we've seen from Oregon the last couple of years. You mentioned Herbert and did I hear that right? The difference between Herbert on some of these plays and Chuck on some of these plays is they wouldn't let him run because he wouldn't slide. Uh, no, no, it just seemed okay. like for what for whatever reason, Justin Herbert uh, was very tentative to run, okay. and okay. and I don't believe that was anything that the staff was telling him to do. You know, and and again, I'm just giving Tyler Shuck credit because I think he's doing a good job of keeping it in fairly safe situations and then also making that great decision to slide and avoid a big hit. So I'm, I'm giving him credit and not, you know, 
not being critical of Justin Herbert. Right. They're just different quarterbacks. There's the way they do things is different. Yeah, I, I just am still flummoxed by it, but that's a really good explanation. Um, now for the defense. The sack totals still aren't there, and I think some fans might be concerned, but I know you were pretty upbeat after what you saw Saturday night. Well, I, I, you know, the, the defensive line, I guess, in my mind, isn't doing anything wrong. Okay, They're not getting gashed for big plays here and there. And I think folks need to remember something and kind of think back to last year and Andy Avalos. And also remember who Andy Avalos has credited a lot for what he's learned along the way, and that being Nick Aliotti. And if you think about it, Oregon has been, under Andy Avalos, and this includes last year, a bit of a bend-don't-break type of defense. Mm. They've given up a lot of yards in the middle of the field, and they did so last year. And then they've gotten inside that 25-yard, 20-yard red zone and really buckled down and either held opponents to field goals or no points. And so that's kind of the root of this defense. And I think folks have forgotten that because they're just expecting Oregon to go out there and force people three and out on every drive. Right. And really, ultimately, this defense wants to keep the play in front of them. They're trying to keep and limit big explosion plays that hurt them and put them in bad positions. I think that's more of the like if Andy Avalos was being honest I think that's more of the philosophy of his defense overall than anything now he's not going to come out and say that because he's going to say I want my guys after the quarterback and I want us to you know punish them on every down and and I get all that that's coach talk but overall if you're looking at big picture and if him and Mario Cristobal are sitting in a room and they say hey look we're giving up a lot of yards but yeah we're not giving up many points you know the head coach isn't going to be upset with that and at the end of the day the defensive coordinator is going to live with that. So uh, from to get to your point, from what I've seen from the defensive line, I think they've done a good enough job of limiting the explosion plays outside of the first drive of Stanford, where they did heavily gash the Oregon defense and really outside of the first drive of Washington state, you know, both those were pretty strong opening scripted drives. And that's typically what happens in a football game. You've had all week, You've worked with your quarterbacks. You've said, hey, look, you know, here's the first six, seven, eight plays, whatever we're going to call on the opening drive. You've practiced them, and it comes out, and it works really well, typically, for a lot of football teams. And that's happened against Oregon both weeks. Yeah. But that, that second drive, the defense kind of settles in and says, all right, now you got to earn it. You know, and, they, and, and sure, they give up some yards and whatnot, but they get inside that red zone, and they buckle down, and they do a good job, and they keep points off the board. And, and that's something that I said even prior to the season. I feel that if the Oregon offense can at least put up 25 points a game, they're more than likely going to be able to win most football games. And that certainly seems to be relatively true at this point, although they are scoring more points than that. Um, You know, the defense might not be as strong as I I expected, but I I mean, I'm looking at Kayvon Thibodeau and I'm seeing a different player. I mean, he's better than he was last year. And I know he doesn't have the sack numbers to go along with that, but there isn't an NFL scout that doesn't flip on the, on the film of him and go, this is a totally different player. This is a much better player. I don't care how many sacks he had last year. And, and that, and that's the truth. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, Jordan Scott, he kind of is what he is at this point. If anybody expected him to maybe be better than he was last year, I don't know what to tell you. I do think that that's a player that's probably ultimately hit his ceiling as a football player. It does. It's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean he's a bad player, 
But if you're expecting him to take that next step like Kayvon Thibodeau or a Mace Funa or somebody younger, it, I just don't think it's there. So I think Jordan Scott is what, what he is at this point. Um, you know, Mace Funa, I was kind of maybe expecting a little bit more from him so far. But I have, you know, we also have to understand he missed some time in the shortened, already shortened camp uh, due to the birth of his son. And so, you know, I know he missed some time in practice, and that's probably caught up with him just a tad bit. Um, I mean, he's a tremendous player. He's not really doing anything wrong. I think for me, I have more alarm with the linebackers. And I say that knowing that Noah Sewell is probably my favorite Oregon Duck player at the moment. And that's, that's tough to say. <laughs> But overall, the linebackers have have just not quite settled in the way I thought they would. I think they'll get there. There's a ton of talent. I just think that leadership of Troy Dye has become a, a, a bigger problem than we all anticipated. Yeah, yeah. Um, you got me fired up thinking about Kayvon Thibodeau because there's a play in the second half, a goal line stand, where he takes out the left tackle and a fullback coming into block in the backfield and, um, and and ends up tripping up the runner, I think. And that play prevents Wazoo from getting the edge, scoring a touchdown, and they have to kick a field goal and, and really swings the second half. I think every NFL coaching staff, once they find the tape of that play and see Kayvon Thibodeau take out multiple people, even though I don't think he'll get credit for the tackle officially, um, they're, they're going to say this guy's a first-round pick just on that play alone. Uh, you mentioned the linebacking core, and I know firsthand just from, from gauging some other friends of mine that are fans, generally the people love Noah Sewell, and like you said, there's still issues, and I, I think that hits to the nuance of the linebacker position. Sometimes a guy like Sewell that is the strongest, meanest, fastest guy on the field, sometimes you need a little bit more than that. And I think it's just because he's a freshman, you got to have that senior in there that can adjust with what the offense is doing, get everybody in the right spot place and and make sure everybody's taking the right angle pre-snap is that kind of where you're going at yeah I, I don't think it's a matter of talent um when it comes to the linebackers and and as much as I like Noah Sewell and I do I mean I love I, I just love the way he uh, he uh I think one of the terms you like to use and and, I, and it totally applies to Sewell is he you know he plays like his hair's on fire yeah. you know he just get, he yeah. gets out there and he's just running around and hitting people and I love it the problem is he's, he's still very much a freshman. You know, he's missed some tackles. Um, and if we're being honest, those just need to get cleaned up. It's not a huge problem. I think it's just a true freshman um, being thrust into a major, a major spot. I mean, he's playing middle linebacker, too. It's not like he's playing outside backer. You know, he's, he's carrying a lot on his shoulders playing that position as a true freshman on a shortened season and no spring ball. I, I mean, it, I think it speaks very loudly to his ability, but he's got some things to clean up there. I think he, he takes uh, some bad angles at times. Um, you know, Isaac Slade has done a, uh, done a pretty good job. I think uh, he is much like Jordan Scott in the fact that, Hey, you know what you're getting out of him as a player. The reality is he's probably very likely hit his ceiling as far as a player or close to it. So is he going to be a great player? You know, he's pretty good, but he's, never going to be a you know i mean i think we could see noah sewell is just scratching the surface 
and those are differences. So I, I think the defense overall, the linebackers, have just taken some bad angles at times and need to clean up the tackles. I think if they could do that and just become a little more dependable overall, not even having to make plays, they're going to be just fine. Because the key to the, the linebacker in this defense, or at least in the Andy Avalos defense for the most part, that defensive line does a really good job of, of clearing out holes, filling gaps, and creating lanes for the linebackers to come up into the alley and make the tackle. Right. If those linebackers aren't doing that, that's when you know the play goes the other way and, and gives you trouble. So I think if those linebackers can really just understand that a little bit better and clean up those tackles, they're going to be just fine. And I think that that right there is the biggest disconnect in this defense currently. And I don't think it's anything we've got to you know, raise red flags about. But I think once they kind of clear up some of those things, this defense is going to be really good moving forward. Yeah, and that's a really important point to consider. I know fans can get caught up in stats sometimes. Uh, in some defenses, if your linebacker has a lot of tackles, it's actually a bad thing because <laughs> it means yes. he has to. Um, in a 3-4, generally, you want your linebackers to get a lot of tackles because that means the D-line is doing the job, clogging those holes. This isn't a 3-4 or 4-3, but I, I do agree with you philosophically, especially with guys like Jordan Scott out on the field. The D-line's job is run support. First and foremost, you're trying to clog lanes. You're trying to free up your linebackers to make plays in space. And and once those guys know where to make those plays and how to make those plays, this defense is going to be a lot better for it. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it, football. I mean, fundamentally, football is this. Your offense, no matter what kind of offense you run, right. your offensive line is trying to create a hole. They're pushing you a direction they want you to go so that their running back can run through the hole. They, they, they come out of the Sorry. And that's what they're doing. And so if your defensive line says, hey, look, they're trying to block me this direction. I need to go fill that hole. If Jordan Scott is smart enough to recognize that and do that and fill that hole, that means the linebacker should come up and find a, an open lane with a linebacker or excuse me, a running back that's somewhere he didn't plan on being. If they can clean that up, they're going to be in great shape. Yeah. Um, let's go big picture. And then we'll dive into UCLA for a couple of minutes. For me, I see 2-0. and I see an offense that's a little better than I thought, especially with those quarterback runs. There's a balance to this offense that I just haven't seen from the Ducks since Mario took over, uh, with, with the exception of that Rose Bowl game where I think they really just, you know, Justin Herbert just went off. Um defensively a little worse than I expected, but not by much. And 2-0. and um, I, 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 Right now, when I look at Oregon, I see a team that is at the top of the conference. Uh, big picture. What do you like? What do you see for Oregon football 2020? Uh, I mean, you know, headed in again. Let's just peel it back. Expectations prior to the first game. You know, Oregon should be the team to beat in the Pac-12, and I, I continue to see that. Um, you know, I understand that USC is also two and zero. I understand that Colorado is also two and zero. I don't think either of those teams are on Oregon's level. Um, I, I uh, you know, uh, Cal's first game. You know, I want to 
I kind of want to scrub that one from my mind. They, they were not very good. Well, but I say that they were not very good, but given the circumstances they were forced to deal with for the, for the weeks leading up to that right. and, and not being able to practice offense versus defense and some of the, Hey, that's, I mean, that's, you know, that changes the game for Cal. So, um, you know, I kind of want to scrub that out of my mind because I think Cal will be better. But again, what we saw out of Washington, I mean, they, I don't, I, I mean, I don't want to use this quote, you know, but they are who we thought they are. I, I just didn't think they were very good to start the season. And I don't think they're very good at this point after one game. So, yeah, I, I feel really good about Oregon. Um, if, if we're talking about Oregon in the Pac-12, I feel great about where the Ducks stand. I love the fact that they have depth. I love the fact that they're young, and I think we're only going to see them get better. And if this is the floor, if what we're seeing right now is the floor for this team, I mean, the ceiling's pretty dang high. I think we can all agree with that. So, yeah. uh, As this applies nationally, and if you're saying is Oregon a playoff contender, is Oregon a top-five team? Um, you know, I, I mean, I think Alabama's better than everybody right now. I think Ohio State's probably up there. I think Clemson at full strength with Trevor Lawrence and everybody's probably up there. I would say the Ducks are a step behind them. But again, I think they're at their floor and their ceiling, you know, we haven't seen yet. So I think they can get there. It's just it's just going to be, you know, how much better they can get, how healthy they can, how, how healthy they can stay and just how um, successfully they can navigate this current pandemic. Uh, now to the opponent on the schedule for the Ducks, UCLA. Uh, at, at the time we're taping this, we don't know when the game is going to be. I have a guess um, that it's it's going to be well, – we know it's going to be Saturday, but I have a guess. We just don't know what the official time is going to be. Um, What's you, your guess? I, I would say – I mean, well, it, it's going to be on ESPN. I was, sure. I was looking, and I'm, I'm guessing 1230 ESPN. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. I mean, I figured it would either be 1230 or 4, uh, you know, be just simply based off the fact, if nothing else, they're going to want Oregon and, uh, you know, a Chip Kelly-led UCLA on somewhat of a primetime slot. Right. You know, 1230 and 4 are the only ones that make sense there. I, I, I mean, I, I honestly thought the ASU and USC game at 9 o'clock was successful in terms of eyeballs. I'm just not sure that you want to do that with this game. Right, right. No, I, I agree with you. Those two factors. Uh, you mentioned one of them, two words, Chip Kelly, and, and you get asked about this every year. Um, what does it mean for Chip Kelly to coach against the Ducks? Um, you know, I don't, I don't think it means much of, of anything, really. I mean, I, I feel like Chip Kelly you know, and Phil Knight and Rob Mullins and the powers that be probably still have a pretty good relationship. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure they're not golfing every Sunday or anything to that effect, but you know, I'm, I'm sure they pick up the phone and talk to each other, uh, you know, every now and then. So there's no bad blood. And, you know, for Chip, you know, he's just one of those guys that, you know, you're, you're going to hear him talk out of the side of his mouth about, you know, faceless opponents and just, you know, you show up and you do what you're supposed to do and see what happens. And, um, you know, so I, you know, I don't know just for me, I, I do think Chip Kelly, you know, likes Eugene, he likes Oregon, loves the area, loves university, all that kind of stuff. But he's showing up to win a football game. Um, and I, I just, I mean, he's the kind of guy that strikes me. It doesn't, it's not going to impact him, you know, one bit. I think uh, maybe more so you might see a little bit more emotion out of a, out of a guy like Chase Cota, you know, yeah. returning to Oregon to play. Yeah, I love that storyline. And, and I remember when he was being recruited, you were really at the forefront of that beat just because 
you know the family. You go way back with Chad and um, and obviously his son being in Southern Oregon. Do you think that uh, there's any regret on how that went down? Do you think he regrets being a Bruin? Um, I yeah, tough to say. I mean, you know, um, I, I I mean, I I will say this. Okay, I've not heard anything from the family about it, so I don't want that to right. be misconstrued. Right. I would think if it was me, if I was if I was Chase Coda, and I was being honest, given the struggles UCLA had last year, and I know that they won, you know, last week, game one. Uh, I, I'm not sure that it's an especially strong team. So, you know, to me, if you're thinking, man, Chase Cota could have been on, you know, the Rose Bowl winning team with his cousin Brady Breeze as the Rose Bowl MVP, you know, I think all those things are pretty special. And if he was being honest, maybe there's a tad bit of regret, but maybe not. I mean, UCLA is a tremendous school. He's getting an absolutely tremendous education probably having a pretty good time living in Los Angeles. Uh, I mean, it's a pandemic, but, you know, and that changes things, but that changes things everywhere. So probably not too badly if I had to guess. Yeah. No, and I've interviewed him before. the, The vibe that I got is Southern California, and he's a musician, so he's taking music classes and having fun, and you get to play for one of your idols in the same way that, um, people always bring up how Justin Herbert grew up a huge Joey Harrington and, you know, um, Dennis Dixon and Marcus Mariota fan. Chase Cota grew up being a Duck fan too, and you grew up rooting for Chip. So it's awesome to see him playing for Chip and and scoring touchdowns for Chip and now uh, getting a chance to play against the Ducks. I, I couldn't be happier for him. Yeah, no, great, great opportunity for him. Uh, the sucky part is, is, you know, none of the family can go to the game, yeah. uh, you know, from, from, from the state of Oregon and, and, su- and support him or, or watch the game, but I'm sure they'll ha- all have it on TV makes for a fun storyline. But at the end of the day, you know, both sides have a job to do. And that's, uh, I guess that's trying to get to either three and O or two and O. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you mentioned UCLA a couple of minutes earlier, that game Sunday that they played Sunday, 9am was a bit of a weird one. They came up with the scheduling literally at the last minute, Friday afternoon. UCLA gets word that they're going to play Cal on Sunday morning. That means no time to watch game film. That means no time to practice a game plan. And you just kind of have to go out there and almost like an NFL preseason game, just run your stuff and hope that the other team can't stop it. How much do you uh, gauge UCLA's performance and and assess what they did off of that game? Ultimately, to me, that game is a scrimmage. You know, you're, it, it's a scrimmage when your defense doesn't know what your offense is doing. Okay, so typically when you see a scrimmage, you know, that's your own team going against your own team, right? Well, the defense usually knows what the offense is trying to do. It's not necessarily fair. In this particular case, it's a defense that's basically saying, okay, let's go out there and scrimmage and try some stuff against an offense. They have no idea what they're doing. So I feel in that particular instance, the way that came together, given what Cal has gone through the last couple of weeks and their local health authorities limiting how they were able to practice and, and you know, offense not being able to scrimmage their defense there, 
you know, Cal was doomed from the start and, and I'm not trying to give them a scapegoat, but really that's, I mean, that's setting them up for some pretty, you know, difficult expectations there. Um, you know, that said, UCLA executed. They did a good job. UCLA had to go out there and play defense against Cal's offense and didn't have, you know, any time to prepare either. But those are the kinds of things that I know that, that, that a guy like Mario Cristobal, okay, you know, the Ducks have spent time scouting their opponents in the spring, okay? Now, I want you to rewind that. I've said the spring. I didn't say in the summer. I didn't say in the fall. I didn't say during the season, okay? During the spring, the, the, the position coaches, the coordinators, the head coach have all spent time prepping for everyone that's on their schedule, okay? And so, you know, I, I think a team like the Ducks that, that, that's done that and can at least say, all right, let's go to our notes right away and let's take a look, you got a shot. You know, you might not win, but you got a shot. I think Cal was probably caught completely off guard, probably didn't, didn't, doesn't do nearly as much preparation there in the spring, if any. And, and it certainly caught him. I, to me, that game's a throwaway. I honestly don't. I still feel like we have no idea where UCLA is this week after what we saw on Sunday. But, um, you know, they went out there and won. That's what you're supposed to do. So, um, you know, the Ducks won't take him like We know Chip Kelly can call up an offense, okay? We know that. That's not going to change. Right now, they've got to keep DTR healthy. If, if, if Dorian Thompson-Robinson goes down for any reason in this game or any game, I think Chip Kelly and UCLA is in very big trouble. So if, if I was Oregon, if I was Andy Avalos, I would be coming after uh, DTR as much as possible and, and seeing you know, if you can alter the game in that fashion. You, you talked about Cal's inability to have a game plan to stop that UCLA passing game uh, and, and the Ducks' ability maybe to do so. It, you've talked about staff size before, how, say, a Bama has a ton of assistant coaches that can work on all sorts of projects. Uh, same goes for Clemson. Do you feel like that's the difference? The Ducks are just a little closer to that dream than maybe Cal? That could be part of it, and, it, and uh, that certainly makes sense. I think it's how you allot your time as well. I mean, you know, is, uh, you know, is you know, let's just say back in May when everything was off, was Cal where all their coaches working, you know, 12 to 15 hours a day, you know, six days a week, seven days a week. I don't know. We don't know. But there's a lot of time that you can make up if they aren't, um, you know, if you're Oregon or if you're UCLA or whoever. So, um, you know, that's the thing. That's one of the words that you, you start to hear more and more. And I know I've heard it from the opening a lot, but, you know, the lonely work and the, and the lonely work is, is the coaches and going in and watching tape and doing all these things that, that we don't see as fans. All we see, you know, is games on Saturday and the product on the field and recruiting. You know, those are the things that you can, you know, assign a merit to. But the lonely work is, is all that stuff that the coaches are going in and doing that we can't, you know, quantify. So, you know, are the Oregon, Oregon coaches working more and working harder than the Cal coaches or the other coaches? Who knows? Um, I, I feel, and I think you would agree, Knowing what we know about Mario Cristobal and his work ethic, I would say that that's probably the case. Right. But, right. you know, to your point, I think it's probably also helped when you have more GAs and you have more, you know, offensive and defensive analysts and you have all these guys in the building that their job is basically, you know, to help the position coaches or coordinators, you know, go through more film and, and, and be able to do more in less time. That's because that's what ultimately you know, what you want in college football. You want to be able to do more in less time, you know, be efficient. And I think that's what an expanded staff helps you do. 
Yeah, in my experience, not just college football coaches, but high school football coaches, pretty much any level, there's a certain personality and they tend to be nuts. <laughs> you know, there's there's not much of a life outside of football for these guys. Um, if I had to guess, and this is no offense to the Ducks coaching staff, I've loved speaking with Coach Cristobal, uh, Coach Avalos here on this podcast, uh, Aaron Feld and some of the assistants. Those guys, I, I think, are crazier than the rest. I, I think that staff, if you just looked at it from top to bottom, if there's one trait everybody has, it's everybody grinds. You know, it just just they work they work like crazy, and um, and I think that that came to their benefit here. Um, when you think about Oregon, UCLA, and this matchup, what excites you the most? Uh, I think the you know it's the opportunity for this Oregon defense to see yet again another look of an offense, you know, because basically so far, this will be a third different type of offense for this defense to face. I think if you're talking about uh, Oregon offensively in this game, their offensive line should be able to push around UCLA's defensive line fairly easily. So I believe that this is one of those games that if the Ducks decide, hey, we're going to ground and pound, uh, I think they're going to be able to do it with much success. So, and and I would expect that that's what they would do. So, um, and really just exploiting mis- mismatches because if you look again, you look at the talent uh, differential. You know, UCLA has not recruited well the last three or four years, at least um, from a ranking standpoint. While Oregon's obviously been recruiting at a, an elite level under Mario Cristobal, so. Um, I feel like even though with what we saw from UCLA and their win over Cal, I think Oregon's going to probably be able to handle this one quite easily. Yeah, I I think that there's a steep drop-off in terms of the challenge they faced in the past two weeks versus the challenge they'll expect on Saturday. Uh, With that said, however, does anything concern you about this game? Um. I don't think, well, I mean, I don't want to say that because then it's, oh, it's going to be 75 to zero. Jayhawk's not worried. That's not the case. I just, I see stylistically, you know, that, that Oregon matches up really well with UCLA, their personnel with, you know, Oregon's identity being a physical style of football team. If you, if you're even talking back to Chip Kelly in the Oregon days, that was always a huge problem for him, you know, facing the very physical Stanford's facing the very physical Auburn's or Ohio state or whoever was a very physical opponent. Uh, you know, o- Oregon really didn't felt farewell in those matchups. And so um, I-, I think that that's what I see here. Um, completely different scenarios, but I mean, Oregon's just, I mean, it's crazy. And we keep talking about this. Oregon's more physical than Stanford right now. And if you're telling me that this team's more physical than Stanford, a Stanford team that typically would have dominated Chip Kelly, uh, you know, at Oregon, that really doesn't bode well for, for the Bruins. That said, Chip Kelly's still an offensive genius. Okay. He's got some pieces there. I know he's got some tight ends. His running backs have shown a little bit of wiggle there. Um, they're pretty effective. Um, you know, the problem is, you know, Chip Kelly's that guy that you can, you know, stop him three state drive, three, force him three and out and three straight drives. And then next thing you know, he's, two plays in on the next drive and it's 75 yard house call. And that's just, you know, a, a calling card of a chip Kelly offense. So 
I guess in terms of that, that's the one, you know, kind of equalizer, if you will, is if Chip Kelly can expose some of the weaknesses that maybe we've even talked about a little bit in the Oregon defense uh, and keep this game close, because that's certainly possible. Um, But in terms of of Oregon, you know, if we've talked about all the teams that have played against Oregon in the past two years and the ones that have been the most successful – what have they done? They've come in and kept Oregon's offense off the field, and they've done that by ball control, right? Taking the air out of the football, long, sustained drives. Well, if you're Oregon and you can do that to Chip Kelly and keep his offense off the field, you're probably going to be in great shape, and I think that that's a matchup that bodes well for the Ducks. Yeah. Uh, not 75 to nothing, though, like you said. Um, it's it's kind of funny that you have to put that in just because – I remember growing up all the games that were 75 to nothing for Oregon early in the year. Uh, are we ever going to see games like that again by the Ducks? Well, I mean, this one will obviously be 74 to nothing. So that's why, <laughs> you know, <but> no, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. I think, I think if this defense by the end of the year can get to that, can get to that point, can take that next step um, and maybe can resolve some of the, questions at safety let's just say they're questions right now um you know i think this is a good enough defense to really keep teams out of the end zone um and and again with what we're seeing with this offense i think we're just seeing the floor i think the offensive line's only going to get better i think they're going to get healthy at tight end and as much as i like dj johnson being being able to put two tight ends out there is going to really make this offense more versatile um and just you know the receivers can continue playing at the level they're playing I don't know if they'll ever be 75 to zero, but I certainly think we're going to see Oregon be able to get to a spot where they're winning, you know, 40 to 10. And and if that's the case, those are blowout wins. Those are big wins. Um, You know, and and at at some point you're going to get up enough that you're just going to start doing ball control and trying to run the clock out. So um, I I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a good team and, you know, we have to think about it. Something that we were touting, or at least I was touting, I'll, I'll take I'll take credit for it. I was touting was that, you know, I sort of felt that the last two games of the season might be Oregon's toughest, and that would be Cal and Washington. And right now, I'm not so sure about that. So if Oregon's playing better, and those guys can't figure out their problems along the way, we could be in for a couple blowouts to end the season, yeah. potentially. Let's hope. Um I, I feel good about this game. I feel like we covered all the bases we need to, uh, aside from lock of the week, which we'll end the show with. Uh, is there anything else you want to hit on with regards to Oregon-UCLA? Nope. No, I mean, he, you know, here we are on a Monday. We're, you know, hoping the game gets played and, and all, all of that happens. But, uh, yeah, I feel really good, and I'm excited. To see, I'm, I'm just excited to see this game, just like everybody else. I'm excited for it. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into uh, an annual weekly tradition here. I should say weekly, not annual. Tradition here on the uh, podcast during football season. Five games where we each pick five games we love and we think you should watch this weekend in college football. Five games. Uh, I went first last week. How about you go first this week? What do you have? You're gonna let me do. You're gonna let me do the honors. I got a feeling you and I are gonna have an, a lot of overlap. And I'll be honest, right now, I have seven games written down, but I'll cruise through it. Indiana versus Ohio State. Yes. Never would have thought that was gonna be a game prior to the start of the season, and I'm freaking giddy for that game. I think it's gonna be an awesome game. 
We're going to get a chance to see, you know, Ohio State, what they're really made of. And we're going to get a chance to see Indiana, uh, you know, and what they can do. We don't know Oregon's kickoffs, but I'll assume that the, that, that the Ducks aren't going to play at 9 o'clock. You know, that's a 9 o'clock game at Fox, on Fox. So definitely tune your TV in and watch that one. That, that should be a great football game. Uh, second one, Wisconsin and Northwestern. Um, seems like a fairly obvious one to me. A couple of ranked opponents. I, I've really liked what I've seen out of Wisconsin so far, but they have yet to be tested. That's a 12:30 game on ABC. If Ducks get 12:30, you know, for their time slot with UCLA, I guess you'll have to two-screen it. But that those are two good games uh, to watch. I'll give you one more, and I'll let you kick it off. Uh, Oklahoma State versus Oklahoma. Uh, Oklahoma looked dead in the water to start this season. They've kind of bounced back a little bit, at least offensively. Uh, you know, the the the, uh, the Cowboys or the Pokes, as you want to call them, Oklahoma State was the Big 12's kind of last chance at having a team, and they no longer really have an option. But I think that'll be a good game, and that's on 430 at ABC. And again, if the Ducks aren't playing in that time slot, that's one that you'll probably want to watch. Yeah. I've got two out of those three. Uh, Indiana, Ohio – or um, I think you said Indiana, Ohio State. Um, Yeah. Buckeyes, we want to see how good they are. Indiana want to see if they can stay ahead of Oregon in the rankings. Obviously, they'd need to win that game to do this, uh, and plus it doubles as that 9 a.m. Saturday matinee. So the, the coffee drinkers and the early birds like me, we get some football to watch. Uh, and then Wisconsin Northwestern was the other one of those three that I had. Uh, yep. Similar reasoning. You see the whooping that Wisco put on the Wolverines last week, and you just want to see if that continues. Um, Northwestern also are kind of the darlings of the advanced stats crowd right now. They, they've got a couple of uh, really neat efficiency metrics that are in their favor, so um, that could be a really fun game. Um, my third game, I, I have a couple Pac-12s on this list. I don't know if USC-Utah is going to be good. Uh, that's Saturday night, 7.30 on ESPN. Um, but the Trojans are unbeaten. Fluky, uh, lucky, you might say. Uh, if, uh, if you're defending, uh, I'm on Ross St. Brown. I'll be honest, I would just tell my defenders, don't even touch the ball because every time they tip it, good things happen for the Trojans. Um, don't know if this is going to be a good game, but I just want to see if they keep winning. Because really, I think that's the only competition for Oregon right now in the Pac-12. Um, that's my third game, and then my fourth game is uh, Cal Oregon State, twelve thirty yeah. on FS1. Purely a, a Pac-12 North litmus test. I don't think the Beavers are as bad as their record. I don't. I, I hope that Cal's not as bad as their record. I don't know. Um, and I just want to find out. So that's that's what I got three and four. How about you? Yeah, everything after Oklahoma State, Oklahoma was my third. Everything after that was Pac-12 for me. It's a very interesting week in the Pac-12. I have USC, Utah. You know, that's a night game. We'll assume the Ducks aren't playing a set in a 7:30 slot as well. Um, that's going to be. I just you know, I think USC takes an L. I think the physical style of Utah, even if they don't play an incredibly good game. I think that that's a bad matchup for USC because they are just not very good on the line of scrimmage. Um, so I'll be interested there. Cal and or- Oregon State, I, ha- I pretty much had everything in the Pac-12, you know, except for the Duck game. Uh, obviously, Arizona State and Colorado 
has been postponed already. I'm not sure that Arizona State plays the rest of this of this month, but we'll see. Um, I've got Cal and Oregon State. Just like you said, I want to see Cal in a second game. I think last week, you know, yesterday, last week was 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 put them up against tough odds. So I just want to get a, a better feel for them. And like you said, Oregon State's a little bit better than their record shows. I think they're a good team. They're kind of that team you don't want to play because they can beat you, even though you should beat them. So I, I think that's where the Beavers are at. Uh, I did also put down Arizona versus UW. I want to see uh, UW was not that impressive to me in this opener. They got an absolute gift on that spot. I know the Pac-12 reviewed it and said it still wasn't a first down. It looked like total BS to me, but it's what's done is done. I think Arizona gave USC a hell of a ball game and looked way better than I expected. I think they're going to give UW all that they can handle as well. And then uh, Wazoo and Stanford, the battle of the two teams that the Ducks have played and beaten so far this year. So that one to me just, you know, how good is, is Washington State? How good is Stanford? Stanford didn't play nearly as well the second week as they did the first week against Oregon, not nearly as technical, not nearly as sound. But, uh, you know, it, it'll uh, Wazoo, actually Wazoo impressed me. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I think they've been pretty good for the first two weeks. I thought they played Oregon tough. You know, Oregon made the adjustments they needed to in the second half to go on and beat Wazoo. I still thought it was a pretty good ball game. Yeah. Um, I'll be interested to see that one. So, I, I don't know. It's a really interesting week in the Pac-12 for me this week. Well, I, I think you hit on two points for people that watched these other games, not just the Duck game or, or maybe you caught a couple of minutes of the Beaver game afterwards, just you know, some husky schadenfreude sort of deal. Um, you saw a Colorado team that I think kind of washed the stink off. They, they look like a contender almost. And, and then if, if you focused on... Oregon's opponent Saturday. This isn't the Mike Leach air raid. This is something, it, it, it reminds me of, you know, back in the day, Mouse Davis at Portland State. This is old school run and shoot. Uh, they're going to run the ball when the box is light, and they're going to run it really well. And then you pair that with that true freshman quarterback Wazoo has, Jaden Delora, they're not going to win a lot of games this year. New coach, new system, true freshman QB. That team is going to be a lot of fun next year and in the years ahead. Well, and people, uh, you know, haven't grasped the fact that Mike Leach actually recruited fairly well for Washington State. You need to throw that in there, okay? Yeah. Did he recruit a top five class like Oregon? No, you're never going to at Washington State. But he recruited fairly well and found some really good hidden gems and talents and brought them to Washington State. Well, guess what? A lot of those players will easily fit in that run-and-shoot scheme. It's not just like they brought a bunch of power guys right. Right. and then switched to a spread offense. That's not what they did at all. So, you know, if you're, if you're Rolovich, you inherited a team that you can work with. Is it your team? No. But it's probably made up mostly of guys you would have recruited and been happy to land Anyway, so they're fairly young like Oregon. Obviously, at quarterback, they've got a true freshman that a lot of people are, are excited about. I thought I think he's a great player. Um, yeah, I think, I think we're going to be having to watch out for Washington the next few years as they continue to grow and get better um, with a lot of that young talent. And, and give the defense credit, too. They've, they've got a good defense. Um, you know, Rolo's DC played, played a pretty smart, pretty sharp game. Um, I think it really came down to the fact that he was just simply outmatched. I mean, he, he was up against one of the best off offensive coordinators in the country and Joe Moorhead and Joe Moorhead's got a lot of weapons on offense. So 
you know, look out for Wazoo. I think they're going to give Stanford fits this weekend, and that's Pac-12 after dark, so we know it's going to be weird for sure. Yeah, I agree. Uh, fifth game for me out of my five, uh, this is out of left field. You mentioned Mike Leach. You mentioned his system. I know it hasn't been pretty this year, uh, but I want to see it again. I just want to take some time and enjoy what I'm looking at. Uh, Georgia, Mississippi State, 430 on SEC Network this Saturday. That's my fifth. Oh, see, I, I would have, yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know. I think Mike Leach used up all his magic on that first game, and it's been it's been a, a real downhill slope after that. So um, I, I don't know. I wonder if, uh, I, I'm wondering if Mississippi State fans are, are starting to already have buyer's remorse down there. I don't know. You, you kind of start reading stuff, and I know fans say weird crap, and you can't pay too much attention to it, but it's uh, I, George is going to steamroll them, unfortunately. So yeah, I didn't have that one on my radar, but I do understand your philosophy. It, it, I mean, it's tough. Like on one hand, yes, you, you should have buyer's remorse because there's <laughs> about a billion people at Texas Tech and Washington State and and folks on the West Coast that can tell you Mike Leach is not the nicest guy and and probably not the best coach, if we're being honest. Um, but you're Mississippi State. Are you are you yeah. really gonna do much better without Mike Leach? I don't know. I I, yeah. I wish at least one SEC team would just say, let's go all in, the, the way Texas Tech did with the with the first Mike Leach era there, uh, the way Washington State did, and just go all in and just embrace the fact that you're you're never gonna beat Alabama playing their way you got to play a different way you know yeah yeah no i agree yeah you're not going to beat alabama at their own game there's there's no doubt about that nick saban's one of the best to do it and you're not going to beat georgia at their own game you know they're they're too good they're too big they're too strong they're too fast so um yeah i I don't i don't discredit mississippi state for going a different way um it's just you know i guess there's a reason more teams don't do it in the in the sec and that's typically because it's not all that successful or or at least not successful maybe maybe it could work with a different coach um and this always brings me to the what if of what if a team just said screw it we're gonna hire ken numatololo from navy pay him whatever he wants give him a big staff and, and let him run the option at a power five school um you know, maybe you, you hire a, a, a D3 coach that's running single wing somewhere and you just let him go bananas. Maybe Mike Leach isn't the guy to do this, but I would love to see more Power 5 schools hire outside the box. Well, it's, it, you know, what it, unfortunately, what it requires, and there's not a lot of it, requires patience. You're going to basically say, hey, look, more than likely, like we'll just, you know, Mississippi State, for example, has not recruited for that style of offense or the type of defense, really, that you need to run that system. So you're saying, Hey, look, next three or four years, you know, do what you need to do, Mike Leach. And then we'll, we'll rejudge you at the end of the three or four years. Unfortunately, athletic directors and fans are not that patient and don't wait that three or four years. You get one year or two years and never really get the kind of players you need in place to be successful with what you're doing. And that's why, for instance, what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, you know, that's why Nick Rolovich has probably been a little bit more successful than we all expected, myself included. You know, he inherited a team that really fits, for the most part, what he's trying to do. So, 
Um, yeah, and that's that's the hard part. Patience. Patience is is definitely the biggest reason I think a lot of those schools don't don't make that switch. And it's hard to you know it's hard to convince boosters and and guys with big money you know hey keep donating. I know we're over or one for or whatever the season is, but you know keep sending me those big che- paychecks because we're going to turn it around. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's a hard sell. No, I I definitely agree with you. So that's my five games. Uh, yep. I, I I think you said you had seven. Did we go through all your seven. Yeah, I just rattled off all those Pac-12 games because that's it was a heavy Pac-12. I was looking at the Pac-12 schedule, like, man, that's an interesting game. That's an interesting game. I mean, just I think if you you know if you're a fan of college football and the Pac-12 and the Ducks, it's it's a I think it's a phenomenal weekend of football. I agree. I agree. Um, do you want to talk hoops for a couple of minutes before we get into fi- uh, before we get into lock of the week? Yeah, just real quick note there. Big day for men's basketball this weekend. Um, one of one of my favorite stories the past couple of years, getting to cover uh, Creators Nate Biddle, who uh, transferred to a school in the Bay Area. Uh, he came back to Southern Oregon, signed his letter of intent. Now the whole world knows he's going to be a duck. Um, a couple other players joined the flock as well, and... And then uh, I believe today this was announced. Women's basketball came out with uh, their schedule. How do you feel about basketball season coming up soon? Yeah, I mean, you know, today was just another reminder of Dana Altman and how he recruits and how successful he recruits at Oregon. You know, they announced the signing of the three players. Obviously, Nate Biddle was the highlight. Um, Not just because he's, you know, basically a player from the state of Oregon. I know he's at prolific prep now but he's basically a player from the state of Oregon right you know five five star six foot eleven you know 200 pounds elite player I mean that's an elite player that the Ducks kept in state and, and held you know some really good schools you know Gonzaga some of the others that are known for for doing a really good job with big men so you know that that right there uh you know deserves some credit but then there's Jonathan Lawson you know six six one sixty five you know a top 50 player a uh, nice little forward, kind of a kind of that mid kind of guy that can that can shoot, um, you know, almost kind of like a, a point forward, if you will, a little bit in that regard for Dana Altman. Um, just just nice little versatility there for the Ducks. And then you've got Frank Kepning, six foot eleven, two hundred twenty five pounds from Cameroon, but you couple that six foot eleven guy with Nate Biddle, also at six foot eleven. And it certainly looks like the Ducks front line has gotten a whole lot taller and bigger. So I think that that's something that, you know, Dana Altman hasn't traditionally had a lot of length. Of, well, he's had some length, but they haven't been especially big bodied. Right. And, and I, I think that really makes them more dangerous and versatile when they have a shot blocking type presence or a or a or a, you know, or a guy that can shoot, shoot the three that's in that six foot nine and above range, which they've had before. Um, you know, it's just, I, I think he's restocked and, and, uh, you know, the ducks are looking great there. And then as far as basketball goes, you know, you've got Kelly Graves, you know, getting ready to gear up. Um, I'm really just, I just so curious about this season for them with all the turnover, all the new faces, um, you're going to open up against Colorado and Utah, uh, in early December. Those are the only games on the schedule right now. Uh, for women's basketball, which is fine. They still have time to figure that out. But at least they got that first weekend set up. And I saw a tweet that basically said that, uh, you know, women's college basketball is continuing to monitor, 
you know, the pandemic and protocols and all these things, but that their current plan is to move forward with a tournament, with a March tournament, you know, uh, March Madness for women, right. uh, basically in the spring. So uh, at least they, at least they acknowledge what's going on and that, that they're continuing to try um, and put that together. Of course, you know, player safety uh, was at the forefront of, of the uh, statement, but um yeah, I'm just. I mean, I'm. I I know we kind of talked about it a little bit last week or two weeks ago or whatever. But it's, you know, here we are. We're about to kind of roll down into football on a short season, but you know, pick it right back up with basketball. And I'm excited for both hoops teams. Yeah. Uh, for me, running a sports radio station, being somebody that I didn't go to Oregon or Oregon State, I don't have a dog in the fight for football. Um, I I've always kind of loved the Kelly Graves duck teams. So I, I do get to root for the Oregon women and see what they do. Uh, just, just having a couple of connections to that program, knowing how they do business, knowing how they operate that team and, and what Kelly believes in. Um, I really want to see his rebuilding project this year, how he replaces the talent that he lost to the WNBA draft. I, I think he can do a great job um, I think they can win a lot of games this year, and even if they don't, I think they're going to be a blast to watch. I can't wait to see it. And then for the Oregon men, y- you didn't get the top vote in the media poll, but that's okay. Uh, last couple of years, I feel like the Pac-12 has had this really neat parody at the top where you might lose to UCLA, but you can beat Arizona, or you can beat Arizona – uh, and beat UCLA on a given night, but you might lose to Oregon State. Um, I, I think that this is a, a really good year for a season like that where there might be a lot of teams early that take on their lumps. Ducks got a lot of young guys, a lot of great, very hyped recruits coming in as freshmen that might get playing time. Uh, a lot of opportunities to kind of fill that Peyton Pritchard void in terms of running and leading the offense. Um, but an opportunity, I think, later in the year for Dana Altman's team to do what they've seemingly done every year under Dana Altman and adjust. Uh, I think he's the best in the conference at in-season adjustment, as we've seen You know uh, the, 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 the Kenny Wooten team that took that crazy tournament run, or even the, the Peyton Pritchard team last year that won the regular season title. Um, I, I, I look forward to seeing that team again, maybe not so much for the first month, but certainly for the second, see how they adjust, see how they get better, and just see some college basketball again. Yeah, yeah. All the all the sports have been a, a a warm welcome to, you know, a bit of normalcy as we've gone through a lot uh, as as people as individuals. We've gone through a lot the last you know six months or so. So just all of that sports is great. And when you're a Duck fan and your team returns, it's all that much better. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. I'm excited, just like all of them, like all the fans. Yeah. Um, lock of the week. Let's do it. All right, man. Ah, ah! Okay, lock of the week, Oregon-UCLA. At the time we're taping this, we do not know officially when this game is going to be played. My guess is 1230 on ESPN. I think you said similar, about 1231 on ESPN. Um, We can't predict that. We can predict something else. What's your lock of the week? 
Well, last week, you know, I went with Jalen Red, kind of being the uh, X factor, if you will. You know, I, I did say he would lead the team in all-purpose yards. He did not do that. You know, obviously, uh, Travis Dye came in and had some pretty exciting, <laughs> excuse me, exciting plays out of the backfield and on his wheel route, um, and did a tremendous job there. Although I was on the right track because Jalen Red had the big catch to end the first half. Um, they did do some some sweeps. Uh, you know, getting him some carries out of the backfield as well. Um, and so this week I actually kind of gave it away and teased it a little bit earlier, but I think it's back to ground a pound for the Ducks. If you're facing UCLA, okay, you want to keep that offense off the field. And the best way to do that is just to keep feeding your running backs and let them carry the ball and carry the ball. I'm not going crazy this week. I'm not, it's not anything that, you know, everybody's, oh man, DJ Hop went off the rails. But I will say that I think C.J. Verdell posts a monster game, a monster game. And I'm going to go ahead and go with the 250-yard mark for C.J. Verdell this week. I think he absolutely erupts for 250 and two touchdowns this week. I'm calling a monster game for C.J. Verdell. And I like that. I like that a lot. You've, you've really, three weeks in, focused on the Oregon running game and focused on the physicality that the Ducks are trying to, I, I wouldn't say establish because they had it last year, but I think definitely reestablish with a bunch of new faces on the offensive line and, and a new play caller, trying to reestablish that physicality. I think you've done a good job aiming for those targets. For me, I'm going to say this is Tyler Shuck's cleanest game. And we saw some mistakes in the first one against Stanford. The fumbles last week, some some snap exchanges that I think he'll want back. I think this is a turnover-free game for Tyler Shuck. That's my lock of the week. Well, and, and if that's the case, if you happen to be right, which you very well could, that's a great prediction, um, it's going to be a big, big win for the Ducks in because I honestly think the only way that UCLA can win this game is if Oregon loses this game for themselves. Yeah, so I agree. If Tyler... If Tyler Shuck plays well, I got a feeling Oregon wins really, really big this weekend. I did not go into the year, and, and you can go back and listen to this, I did not go into the year expecting Oregon to be the favorite in the Pac-12. I said when the media voted, I would not have voted them number one, uh, but two weeks in, seeing Cal, seeing Oregon State, seeing USC win just by the, the grit of their teeth, I think the Ducks are the class of the Pac-12, even with their warts. I think they can only get better, and I think we see that on Saturday. I think the Ducks win. How about you? Well, the two things you know to me that stuck out about this season is, is who has talent and who has depth. And, and Oregon had the most there. Did they have some question marks? No doubt. I mean, they lost you know, potentially what looks like to be a couple of first-rounders in Javon Holland and Panay Sewell that aren't on this team that though you add those two guys to this team and this team is, is, is dangerous is outright dangerous. Uh, you know, you bring back a guy like Brady breeze or even a Thomas Graham or both. This team is unquestionably just going to crush everybody in the pack 12, but they're gone. And the ducks have still probably the most depth of anyone in the conference. They're very physical at the line of scrimmage, which is going to help them in any game that they play all year. I think all those things made it so that the Ducks were still the team to beat. Again, the biggest questions we had were on offensive side of the ball. Would they be able to come together? Is Tyler Shuck as good as we thought he was? I think he is. I know some people get frustrated with him at times, and, and, and you know some of the decisions he makes aren't the best. But again, we're talking about a young man that's on a second start 
and his second start was on a road game in the Palouse where Oregon hadn't won in, uh, I can't remember, it was like four or five years. Um, you know, so I, I, I would have to say that he's kind of answered in spades so far, and he's only going to get better, and this offense is only going to get better. So they certainly look like the team to beat. And, and USC has many of the question marks that I thought they would have entering this season. And, you know, the same with Washington. And, and, and what's hurting Stanford is the depth. You know, they're just – you know, they've been absolutely pillaged in, in terms of depth, but they're a good team. So, yeah, yeah I, I'm with you. The Ducks Ducks are the team to beat in the Pac-12. Okay. All right. We're just over an hour. Scoop Duck and Hi-Fi. I feel like we hit everything we might want. I'm, I'm guessing there's not a bunch of big recruiting news we're missing. Uh, nope. No, not at all. <laughs> just complete, completely quiet on that front. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, just, just the way 2020 works. Um, we'll call it a wrap then. We'll, we'll come back next week. We'll tell you how we thought the Ducks did against UCLA and what we think they might do next week. Uh, my name's Matt Bagley. I'm joined by Justin Hopkins from ScoopDuck.com, where you can listen to this pod when it comes out later this Monday. You can also listen to this pod on any podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn. I use Apple Podcasts. My fiance can find Find it on Google Podcasts. I know it's out there. A scoop duck in Hi-Fi. We tape on a Monday. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Go Ducks. <laughs>